Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. Joe Biden is now the 46th president of the United States, and the debacle of the transition of power is hopefully coming to an end. But with the second impeachment of Trump, the riots at the Capitol, the response to the riots, and the 2020 election, we here at SEF are ready to finally give our thoughts. But first, the random question of the episode. Christy and Cody, if you had been granted a million dollars today, what would you use your first hundred thousand dollars for? Oh, do you? Wow. Yeah. You know, know I'm a lawyer, right? Do you know how many student loans I have? (laughs) (laughs) I I was my answer too, but I'm glad glad we're on the same page. A hundred thousand is a nice down payment. (laughs) (laughs) that'll get the ball rolling my wife is beginning the process of prepping for the LSAT and going to law school so I'm glad she's hearing this (laughs) tell her no don't do it there's so many other things you could do (laughs) oh man yeah I would totally pay off all my all my student debt because I was the first kid that my parents had that no, use student loans. They didn't use student loans back, you know, the 80s and 90s. So I was the first one. None of us knew what happened. If we did, then we would not have done what we did. So I owe a lot of money myself. So yes, I would have definitely paid off my student loans first off. I tell my students, um, I do not accept bribes. I do have a a bribe price for a good grade. It's a hundred thousand. If you've got a hundred thousand, I will take it. I will gladly get fired for my job if you have a hundred thousand. I will take it now. <laughs> Oh, oh that's funny. I mean, now that you guys have given me a minute to think, thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't thankfully have student loans because I went to a very small, cheap law school, if I'm being honest. Um, I loved it. It was great, uh, specifically because I have no loans. So I would probably finish paying off my parents' house for them because my dad has arthritis in his hands and he's working on it and trying to fix it. And I often feel sad for him. So... <laughs> I would like him to not have to do that. I think so we can noble. tell. I, I was no. going to say, this is this is like the <laughs> third God. noble answer Chrissy's had to the random Man. question of the episode. We, Cody and I here are just like, yeah, just pay it off all. And Chrissy's just like, I have family. I have brothers. I have ch-. We can definitely tell that there We're is too libertarian. A, there's a parent. <laughs> there's a parent in our host group. We're oh. neither of us have children. Uh, we we're yeah. not nearly as, as, as kind and altruistic as her yet. Maybe someday, but not yet. <laughs> I am sure deep in your heart you are very much so. I'm still well, figuring out how to like feed myself day to day. So once I get that <laughs> locked down, then we'll move on to the altruism. <laughs> and not the Randian altruism for those that are listening that are, you know, objectivists. 
just, voluntary just, altruism. Just stop. Just stop. Just, just <laughs> please don't walk me down that road again. I have no clever transition into our topic today from altruism and money, except that we're going to be spending a lot of it in the next four years. <laughs> but let's just no, just let's just dive into it. So the 2020 election was strange to say in the least. It was strange for the, for a lot of reasons you wouldn't think. It wasn't strange because it was vitriolic or is uh, had a lot of toxicity. That seems to be common nowadays because of American politics. The bizarreness, the strangest, in my opinion, was what happened on election day itself. That a variety of southern states, traditional Republican fortresses, moved not only to vote for Biden, they moved for vote, they moved to vote for Democrat senators. This isn't an easy thing to process. Now, Christy, you are a Republican operative, who, by the way, is, can I, can I, can I reference your candidacy for state chair for the Colorado GOP? Yeah. Chrissy will probably have a modesty not to announce it, but I will say that Chrissy is running for the Colorado state chair uh, for the Republican party. And uh, I, I believe in Christie's values. I know that she has a love of liberty and a genuine appreciation for the constitution. So if not for the podcast, at least for me, I endorse Christy for the state <laughs> chair of the GOP of Colorado. So you don't have to, Christy, if you don't want to, but I will endorse you there. But you are a Republican operative at a high level. Can you help us process this Southern weakening of, of the Red Wall? Sure, sure. No, I mean, I think it's very interesting. And there's a lot of thoughts and theories and some that I think will be continued uh, to be developed and analyzed, <laughs> analyzed to death, no doubt. But I mean, if you look back, it's not altogether unusual for Southern states to sometimes vote for Democrat presidents. I mean, look at Bill Clinton, for example, who was from the South and able to win certain Southern states. So I think um, in some ways, Biden comes off in ways that don't completely turn off more typically conservative voters. I would say my mom is actually from Alabama. So people in the South, I mean, they're, they're nice people. They're very, very nice people. And some of them probably were attracted to the persona of Biden being a nice old grandpa. Um, <laughs> He's from Scranton. Scranton, Pennsylvania, of all places. I didn't know that until like a couple of days ago. I'm like, Scranton, what is going on? Yeah. Twilight Zone. But also, I think with Kamala Harris being a Black woman, there a, a let's look at Georgia specifically, a very high Black population, thanks to Stacey Abrams and her good efforts, a lot more Black people are registered to vote in Georgia. And they were compelled to turn out by the Democrat machine. Whereas you saw a lot of factions breaking off, especially after Trump lost on election day, you saw a lot of the factions breaking in the Republican party, some, some of the more vocal and extreme <laughs> lawyers who claimed to represent Trump, even though they did not work for him, you try to convince people to stay home. And unfortunately too many of them did that. So there's so many dynamics at play and that's only talking about Georgia. The other important point I'll throw out is one analysis I actually buy that I think was good. In the Georgia Senate races, the Democrats talked about local issues. They drove them home. They talked about how their policies were going to affect your life tomorrow and how they are going to 
help you today and your kids at school. And the Republicans focused more so on national issues. Typically, that's just fine and that works well. But in the current environment with COVID and people's kids not all being in school and people are very focused on their immediate lives and the local issues that affect them today. So I think that was actually a very good play by the Democrats that Republicans would do well to learn from. Yeah. I think there was an interesting, if I may, Stanton. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things I think you saw is, so going back to 2008 with Obama's campaign, right, he was able to drive new voters to the polls. And that's what really drove support behind him. Trump did the same thing in 2016. He drove people that weren't voting to the polls in 2016. I think what you saw in 2020 was everybody went to the polls. You know, I know there's a lot of questions surrounding legitimacy and whatnot, and I don't know that we really need to weigh in on that. Um, But I think what's really interesting is that a lot of people voted. And I think this is something that we've even talked about on the podcast before of our lives are more political. We care about what's happening in different places. And we're, we're watching house races in states thousands of miles away from our own. People are donating to campaigns in New York when they live in California. People are just more political today. And I think so many more people are paying attention. I think that there was record high voter turnout in this election because Trump animates people on both sides. But I wouldn't be surprised if you continue to see high voter turnouts, at least higher than we've had in the past, just by virtue of people paying more attention to what the government is doing. Do you think that's a symptom of COVID and how much people have been home? (laughs) Or do you think it will continue even if everyone goes back out? Um, I think COVID's part of it, right? You're stuck with a TV like too many hours a day. Sometimes you're watching soaps and you're watching Survivor reruns. And other times, you know, you've got CNN on the background or Fox News or whatever you listen to, OAN. Um, So I think that's a lot of it. But I think people are just more plugged in. I think Uh, You know, progressives are realizing more and more that the mission can be accomplished with bigger and bigger government. And I think that that's becoming more of a reality. If you look at Biden's um, administration appointees, I mean, that's pretty obvious. Uh, And I think conservatives are starting to realize that you can't or even libertarians are starting to realize that you can't ignore the problem and kind of hope it goes away. Not that that's been the conservative movement, but you know, there's always the, when you're, when your default setting is they should not be involved in my life, then your default setting is to not get involved. So I do think that you'll see more and more conservatives and libertarians. I think the libertarians in particular are going to become more and more active. Um, and I think you'll see continued political involvement, but I do think that COVID contributed significantly to the just vast majority this round. Honestly, COVID wasn't a thing. It, I, I, I'm not confident Biden would have won. But that's that's a what if of history, and we can do that forever. Something I want to I want to ask because this has been in the Democrat uh, circles for a while. Is this gradual now rapid decreasing or or or, or destabilization of the Republican stronghold in the South? The conversation is usually in Texas with the increase of Latino voters about how. Uh, places like Austin and Dallas are becoming more and more blue, and the red the red districts are are thinning. I hadn't heard it until Georgia, but you kind of made the point, Chrissy, is that this. I don't want to be I don't want to generalize here because I don't know the populations, but this is, there are a 
significant number of African-Americans living in some of these Southern states, how they haven't been more Democrat until now is actually surprising. And again, this is not to say, please do not misconstrue my words. This is not to say that all African-Americans vote Democrat. It's simply the fact that a great trend and majority of them do. So I've wondered why haven't they been Democrat more in the past? And you made the great reference to, you know, a higher registration, voting rights, and so on and so forth. If that's the case, if registration is really all that took to push Georgia to become a blue state now, as it is today, what does that mean for the general Republican Party nationwide. If registration was what kept Republicans secure, and now registration is becoming more common, how how does the party realign itself? That's a great question. And I think, I mean, there's a ceiling always on registration numbers. There's always a limit to the number of people that are out there and unregistered. Uh, Colorado's a unique state in that we have one of the highest voter registrations in the nation because it's so easy to be a registered voter here. Other states like Georgia, it was harder to register to vote. I mean, really not that complicated, but complicated enough where unless people were super excited about a candidate and therefore wanted to get out there and register themselves, they would not be automatically registered like you are in Colorado and you get a driver's license, which everyone's excited about getting. (laughs) So sure, in some of those states, I'm sure the Democrats seeing the success of Stacey Abrams' project will certainly want to take that outside of Georgia to other states, but they're going to have to analyze, do they have the ceiling in those states like to hit? And is it really going to overcome the you know increase in votes that the Republicans typically have? The other thing they had going for them is that Joe Biden has a long-standing relationships in the African-American community. Yeah. You saw that that's why he won the Democrat primary. Had Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar been the nominee, you would not have seen them win. They don't have those relationships or that camaraderie or the endorsements in the African-American community. So combine Joe Biden with his choice of Kamala Harris, and you had the perfect storm for those voters to be, those new voters to be excited to come out. I mean, to your point, Obama created the same thing. Trump created the same thing the first time around. Um, And I guess my final point in relation to your question, what the Republicans do, we've seen a lot of headway being made with Hispanic voters. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump certainly showed in some districts in Texas and Florida, he greatly increased the number of Hispanic voters who went Republican. We know how he did that. We know his, we know what values he was communicating. We know how he related to them. And that's something the Republican Party can absolutely increase um, in Florida, in Texas, in, in other states that will matter to us. I don't actually think necessarily, maybe it is. I really don't think that it's a, a race divide question here. I think there's a ton of just Americans that aren't registered to vote because one, they don't care enough, or two, they don't think their vote matters. And there's some questions there. <laughs> Uh, especially depending on where you live, but, um, you know, ask any good libertarian and the only value in voting is having the I voted sticker and you could lie about that. So, um, but, you know, I think that there's just a lot of people that don't vote. I mean, I know I won't out anybody in particular, but, you know, I know members of my family that are conservative, whereas, you know, I may not traditionally be as conservative and they didn't vote. I mean, 
there's just a lot of, I know people in Georgia that would have voted Republican if they had voted that just didn't vote. And not because anybody told them not to go to the polls and not because of it, they just don't vote. So there are just a lot of people that don't care enough to deal with it or for, for lower income people, it is tough. I mean, if you bus to work and you've got to, you know, yes, you get a day off work. Yes. You know, there's allowances made and whatnot, but you know, those dollars add up and that time adds up. So for some people, the, the calculus, the ROI just isn't there. So I do think that it's more than just, you know, I don't think all of a sudden as registration rise, you're just going to see it all being Democrat voters. I don't think that's the case. Um, I don't know if it's more Democrat than Republican, but I do think if registrations rise, you'll see more votes on all sides. I'd be curious to see how the 2022 midterms go then to see, to see if we can test that out. That's going to be the test, right? That'll be the interesting one. You're definitely right, Cody, that there's a good number of people who just flat out don't vote because I was actually just talking about that in an event I was speaking at um, the other night where like take Denver, for example, there are a lot of Republicans registered in Denver who almost never vote because they likely, many of them think it doesn't actually matter because they are outnumbered in Denver. They know it. So especially if they're doing that calculus that you talked about, well, hey, the cost and time it takes me and granted in Colorado, it's easy because you can mail it in. But still, if people are doing that cost benefit analysis, this isn't going to make a difference in their opinion. I, of course, think differently. They they don't do it. So that is going to be a lot of the battle in 2022 is certainly in some states increasing voter registration, but in other states, making sure the people who are registered actually go vote. And that would change numbers significantly and flip some races. So I think we've, <laughs> and as, as much as people have wanted us to talk about the election, we're not an election podcast. We're not even really a politics podcast. We just, we wanted to make sure that we could get our, our, under, our understanding as best as we can being political operative, a government teacher and two lawyers. We want to make sure that we get, we got what we thought about it now that the election and everything else is over. But what we are is a show about liberty and movements of liberty and threats to liberty. And I think, especially with the 6th of January's riots, this is a great time to bring up the idea of mobs. The riots at the U.S. Capitol were the capstone to a very, very bizarre insistence that Trump won the election, not Biden. And it speaks to a theory of, of history called low-trust, high-trust societies. In a low-trust society, actually, let's start with high. In a high-trust society, you might have disagreements. You might have very heated disagreements with your opponents, we'll say. Uh, but you never believe that your opponents are evil. Your, your opponents have the best interest of the nation at heart, even if you don't think what they're doing is in the best interest of the nation. In low-trust societies, you have no faith in the goodwill of your opponent, who you don't view as an opponent, you view, you view as, a, as an enemy. Whatever they do, whatever they say, is not only wrong and incorrect, it's morally invalid. It is evil and despicable and not to be trusted whatsoever. Nothing on the other side use that, that, that they do can be correct. These riots are an example of that low trust, that 
whatever is happening inside the U.S. Senate chamber, whatever happening inside the House of Representatives, it, it, it is against the moral foundation of our country. Um, to me, these rights are despicable, not because they had some revolutionary ideals. I, I, Cody, Christian, you're familiar with the Jefferson quote, right? That the tree of liberty must be refreshed with the blood of patriots and tyrants from time to time, right? I'm sure that some of these protesters thought that that's what they were doing. To me, these were just a bunch of LARPers who lost. They're jack wagons. They, they, it was disgraceful losers, right? Now, that might that- be the first time the word jack wagon has been uttered in 2021. And as a result, <laughs> I think you should just claim it as your own. It TM, I'll take it. <laughs> Um, I, I think you're right. So I think, you know, the the oldest right, one of the rights that they talk about in the Declaration of Independence even is the right of revolution. This idea that, you know, when the bonds are so heavy, when the king is so um, treads on your rights, so then you're the only thing you're left to is revolution. That's not what this was. I mean, and, and I think the key here is you're right. I mean, we live in a low trust society. We dealt with four years of just vitriol on on both sides but by completely undercutting any potential to have any sort of civil discourse you had that exact same exchange when the the results of the election were called into question instead of it being a legal proceeding with factual analysis put before a court the cases were decided in the public opinion before complaints were even filed in courts of law and there were some bizarre filings. There were some good filings. There were some very um, actually interesting theories of law that I think were were presented by some attorneys. And as a result, none of that mattered. And, um, you know, judges were looking at cases. And I mean, I can only imagine as a judge, it's, it's got to be very difficult in that scenario when you're looking at a case and, you know, you might think it's one way or the other. And then you're thinking, oh, how I rule might tip a nation sort of thing. So, you know, instead of instead of having out these battles in our legal system, which is what is designed for our America, whether you're a, you know, I'm a constitutionalist first and foremost, um, is important. You know, that's a big focus. But this this wasn't a right of revolution. This wasn't a, you know, actual, you know, new movement. This was people who were protesting and, and took it, too far for people that were also decrying violence on the other side just months ago. Um, and for me, I think that's that's kind of the, the biggest thing that frustrated me in a sense was watching it happen and just recognizing the complete change of position. And obviously their actions can't be attributed to the whole, just as actions of the individuals over the summer couldn't be attributed to the whole. But um, you know, I think at one time I jokingly mentioned if you were going to burn a building, maybe government building, but, and then I completely added disclaimers, which I will add again, that you should not burn down government buildings. Um, but, if, you know, it was interesting that the change in position here was on all sides and it was just, just like the last four years. I mean, there was no actual consistency in anybody's ideological opinions. There was no consistency, um, in, in any, you know, issues, except for a lot of, and I was really impressed that a lot of, you know, Republican leaders came out and immediately denounced what was happening, which is what they had been doing all summer. And, 
I think it's important that they did that here as well. But yeah, I mean, this wasn't this wasn't a right of revolution question. This was a a protest of an election that got out of hand. Now there were some some among amongst this LARPing group that wanted to prevent the certification of elections. They wanted to prevent the president. Uh, wanted to prevent uh, Biden's uh, election confirmation. And I suppose that could be called an insurrection or a coup. I suppose it doesn't technically fit the definition of coup, but that doesn't really matter for coups. I, I, I guess I was bothered by the use of the word coup and insurrection for for this simply because I, I could I, I had a hard time finding any consistency with with these with a lot of these protesters. I mean, for God's sake, one of those protesters was an old woman with an American flag. Right? I'm not saying she should have been there. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying for God's sake, I have a it, the. I have a, a pet peeve of mine. When you use words wrong, it upsets me, especially when the meaning of the word has significance and you use that word and it diminishes the significance, right? I don't know if this was domestic terrorism. I'm sure that there was some violence intended by some of these individuals, and I hope they get prosecuted to the full extent of the law. It must have been terrifying if you were in the Capitol, if you were working there. It must have been terrifying. I don't know what to call this except a riot. I don't think it's an insurrection. I don't think it's a coup. And the reason I'm worried about this is because as soon as you start using those words for something like this, you use those words for other things. And the use of the word domestic terrorism bothers me. And I don't know if you've seen the the proposition by some to make a 9-11 commission style for domestic terrorism, right? An anti-civil liberties panel of government to investigate American citizens for domestic terrorism. We have an FBI for that. We have even the NSA violating our civil liberties already. I really, really don't want another. Uh, well, I mean, and that's the thing we're going to have to watch in the next four years, I think, is how many of our liberties are they going to tread on and investigate and look into and be suspicious of all because and in the name of solving domestic terrorism and a few people being violent. Um, it's I think it's a big problem. Like from my perspective, domestic terrorism, yeah, there were there, in my view, there were a couple instances of it because there were pipe bombs laid outside the Republican National Committee and the Democrat National Committee, and I think one other location. Yes, whoever did that, I, I would consider that domestic terrorism. But insurrection, and I, I made this point on the radio because I was actually hosting a radio show the week this came down that was not planned that way. So that was interesting and fun. But we talked a lot about what is insurrection and it, it has a very specific definition. And yet on one hand, somewhat of a broad definition when you're attempting to commit some destruction against a government. So it's like the broad definition of it or of a government building. If going in and causing destruction in the Capitol building is insurrection. What about the people who tried to start a fire at the police building in Aurora? What about all the people who committed vandalism and destroyed the Capitol in Denver? I mean, were those all little mini insurrections? Every single one of which were carried out very ineffectively. So that's the other thing. People continue to talk about this on TV as, oh, this reminds me of 9-11. This is like 9-11. And that is what really offended me. <laughs> I'm hard to offend. But I, I, as all of us do, and people of our generation, I remember 9-11 very much. Like over 3,000 people died in 9-11. What happened to the Capitol, every single loss of life is absolutely tragic and equally tragic. But 
nowhere near 3,000 people died. You cannot compare the January 6 riots, and I completely call them unacceptable, wrong, every you know bad word out there, but it was not 9-11. So to blow this up to something it's not, and my fear is for the purpose of going after anyone who shares minority views, that's a big problem that we've got to watch out for. So oh, absolutely. God forbid you, you know, fly a Gadsden flag in a year. I mean, that's going to be a I sign of hate. It hates him about the Southern poverty. Well, there have yeah. been these articles uh, like, ooh, let's dissect the symbols of the riot. And that's exactly what they're doing is they're going going through every symbol anyone carried. And they weren't only going after people in the Capitol, who, again, were very wrong, but people who were literally peacefully protesting, exercising their First Amendment rights outside a government building, not the ones who broke down the barriers, the ones who were just attending a rally and being perfectly fine. They're analyzing their symbols. And yeah, there were absolutely symbols of hate carried by some people there. There were also patriotic symbols carried by people that now are going to put a whole class of people in danger um, arguably by a government that wants to shove down their voice because they're now the defeated minority. And that's a problem. Something I want to, I want to talk to, I think one of the reasons why this was the, 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 that this, uh, that these riots were made into this attack on democracy. I think one of the reasons why is this idea of state cultism that there are some, who have such a reverence for the state, for the government, that it is quasi, not just quasi, it is religious in nature. The sanctity of the House of Representatives chambers, the sacredness of the United States Senate. And I get it. There's a lot of history involved. These are the halls of our republic where our laws are made. And I get that. It's You should be respectful. But to have, they're rooms. And there's certainly not rooms in which we, you know, laid upon the sacrifice of a bull, right? The, but but we treat it as if it is. Is that an option? I think it speaks to the this the reaction against the riots speaks to how unhinged a lot of Americans are in how they understand government. Government is not your God. It is not your, uh, uh, it's not your provider of life or even your provider of anything. It's force organized in a very systematic way. And, and to continually deny that it, the laying of blame upon representatives and senators like Ted Cruz, who are exercising their constitutional right to contest election results, becomes the equivalent of attacking the fundamental nature of democracy, of the republic itself. Why is there that reaction against a valid move by a senator? It's because they cannot grasp a process that would dare oppose their results. And this is the, this is the key. For those of us who love liberty, Conservatives and libertarians alike, process means everything. Mm -hmm. If you are someone who values anything else than liberty, you value the results of what you want, whether it be equality, whether it be uh, distribution of goods in a different way, whatever. The process to get there doesn't matter. 
But process is everything for a republic because process is what protects your liberty, your fundamental rights. I mention process and I mention results because of the private response to the riots, not the government response, primarily in the terms of deplatforming Trump on Twitter. But hold on, before you go there, something that when we talk about state buildings, and this is why when I was joking about, you know, vandalizing government buildings, which again, I do not support and do not think you should do. To me, in this idea of like an idealized statehood, the Capitol building and the White House are Mecca. Those are those are your, that's, you know, the symbol of freedom. That's the symbol of America. That's not America. That's not my America. My America is the small business on a corner that somebody founded because they fled their country under political asylum, got here, started their own business. And now they've got a community that comes to them for their uh, pick a good uh, corner store, dry cleaning, uh, fast food, whatever it is. That's my America. My America is the mom and pop shops down on Main Street that are struggling to survive. The Capitol building is pretty sure. I love Roman architecture in a classical, you know, interpretation, but that's that's not our country. I mean, this idea that all of a sudden they tread upon the hallowed ground. I, it's if you can't condemn people burning down small businesses, then then you've lost what our character is. You've lost what our country is and you've lost what we're striving for. And that's what scares me so much. People that did damage to the Capitol were absolutely rioters, should not have been there, so on and so forth. That's bad. But you can't condemn people burning down small businesses for everyday hardworking Americans. Like that's our country. That's what we're founded on. And and without that, we're going nowhere. And it goes back to this results versus process mentality. Absolutely. The, the process of burning down small businesses, of rioting for racial equality. And God, please, we need a better approach to race in this country. I, the, we, we mentioned before the sentiment behind a lot of the riots during the summer were, were, were valid in their in their... Not, not in their approach, but in what they wanted. But this is the thing. They didn't care what the process was so long as they achieved the result, right? When that same exact process is used for a different desired result, the process becomes bad because the result for them is bad. It's, it's ends justify the means all over again. Right, we we can't allow that mentality. Ends cannot justify the means, no matter what a German diplomat tells you. Okay, it it can't. Right. I think you guys are right on here because when I did the radio show, that was actually one of the biggest objections from people calling in. Is there's like they were like, how is there some huge outcry? And they were talking specifically about Democrats and liberals. Now that people entered the Capitol building and scared the congressmen and the senators, but there was no equal outcry when our businesses in downtown Denver were being attacked and burned. That, I mean, exactly what you guys are talking about is exactly what a lot of people were calling in and asking. Is there like, 
how is that equal? Like are our congressmen and women and senators above all the average citizens? Um, Nancy Pelosi <laughs> called um, the, the building of Congress like the temple of democracy. I mean, absolutely using religious language there, which is again, offensive to me and I'm hard to offend. But yeah, our government buildings are not religious symbols. Government is not God. And the people we elect are not above the rest of us. And that, I think people are beginning to get a sense that, yeah, I'm sorry, that's exactly what the left thinks. That is why they did a huge outcry when this happened, because they do exalt government and elected officials to that level. Whereas you'll see a lot of conservatives, and, and I do think a lot of conservatives were fairly even across the board ideologically saying, hey, violence committed for the sake of a political objective is wrong, whether you're Antifa, you're BLM, or your Trump supporters, you can't go and destroy property and people's livelihoods and, and commit violence that ends in the destruction of people's lives because you want to have a political end. That's why, you know, I know the state Republican Party who I work for, like right away came out and said, this is unacceptable. It's wrong. Just like everything last summer was wrong. Um, but I think on the left, you do see that exaltation of government and elected officials and people are beginning to see that hypocrisy, though not quite to the level I hope they do. <laughs> so I know that Stanton's going to want to push this forward, but I've yet to talk about Rome and we're pretty far in. And I, I feel like our listeners are concerned, uh, frankly, those that haven't turned off because they haven't gotten their Roman history lesson for the... <laughs> Um, but so one of the reasons that, and I'm drawing a little bit of inference here, but one of the the benefits that the founders created with our representative system, system, and the way that the electors are counted, which obviously is, is some of which was developed later on, um, through amendments to the constitution is that the, they recognized that there was a lot of heightened tensions surrounding a lot of elections. So, you know, Rome had fairly peaceable elections a lot of the times. Um, most of the time, you just don't hear about it. A lot of them were corrupt and set up, so you just kind of knew who was going to win anyway. Um, but there's a fairly famous election uh, that occurred in 100 BC for the consulship of 99. Uh, so Rome had two consuls every year. They were elected at, in like December-ish um, autumn of the year before. And there was a particular one where uh, Marius, the Marian reforms, if you've heard of them, had finished his fifth consulship in, in 100 and a kind of a friend of his was running, um, Glaukia or something to that effect. And he's running for one. And basically it looks like he's going to lose to a guy named Mamias. And as a result, he just calls in a mob. And when he calls in the mob, because they, in the Roman system, they announced their, like we do kind of with our representatives, they announced their electors, but they did it in public, in the square, with everybody there. Tensions are high. So as a result, Glaucia sees that he's going to lose, just whips up the mob, and they kill his opposition in the square. Marius, who's actually a friend of Glaucia, gets called in by the Roman Senate to quell the mob. So now he has to decide if he's going to, interestingly enough, whether he's going to support his friend who's going to support his campaigns and continue the, the, the violence, or if he's going to denounce it. I know a lot of people kind of saw Pence in this role of, is he going to kind of side with Trump or is he going to denounce it? 
And I heard one uh, compare him to Brutus and Caesar. I'm like, I don't think you understand how how Brutus and Caesar worked. I don't think no. you, you get it. <laughs> um, so so Marius comes in, decides to quell it, but because they're his friends, he lets them escape down to another building. And as a result, the the op- opposition is waiting for them. And a lot of people have heard this story. It came up with Cato as well, but they literally started stripping tiles off the roof and throwing them at the, the opposition force and stoned um, Saturninus to death, who was with Glaucia. And then Glaucia hides in a building and gets pulled out. But basically what you see is you see these super heightened tensions during a contested election. And you see what happens when we let passions overtake reason. And as a result, I mean, you could have a really nice tied up moral to the story is like Glaucia raised this mob and then he ended up being killed by the mob that was raised in opposition. So there's probably like an Aesop's fable story ending there. But really, I think what you see is you see what it looks like when people get that impassioned and the negative, the, the downside of allowing for passion to overtake reason. And I think that's what you saw on January 6th. I think look, were there agitators? I don't know. Were some people led into the Capitol? I don't know. Were There's videos of people crashing gates. There's videos of doors being opened. Who knows? I'm sure there'll be an investigation to figure it out. But what absolutely happened was passion overtook reason. And our system is designed to allow passion to exist, but to not allow passion to destroy our system and to destroy the minority. And that's what you saw sometimes happen in Rome. And that's what we are trying to get away from. And I I think that right now we're all real passionate. We need to take a step back and and start allowing for some reason to win. Ben Franklin was right. Republics are kept by people. They're not maintained by government. Um, So this response to the opposition, as Cody put it, um, we see that a little bit happening in the private sector as well, not just government, because liberty is not just about how we approach government's interactions with the citizenry, how we also look at how a citizenry must interact with itself. Um, I have never used Parler. I tried to get on it. I didn't like it. I left. I don't think I spent more than an hour on it. But Parler got basically just straight stripped from the Internet as much as you can. Uh the the president's personal um, Twitter was removed by the platform. Um, And this brought up a really, really weird dynamic. This platform was removed by Twitter, not Parler. No, what I'm saying is Parler got stripped. And then the president's Twitter got removed by that platform, by Twitter. Right. There we go. Um, This creates a really weird dynamic, an opposition of two really strong libertarian beliefs. The first is private property, and the second is free speech. Now, we all have uh, this understanding of private property as one of our first few shows, okay? The right of an individual to maintain and control their property, whether it be within a group like a board of directors or a sole individual, is absolute. It should be an absolute thing that you get to do what you want with your property so long as you're not, like, actively, deliberately hurting someone, okay? free speech is not the First Amendment. A lot of people get confused by this, okay? Yes, the First Amendment does have some really strong free speech ideas. 
but it does not restrict free speech. Free speech is a is an idea. It's a principle, not a law. It demands a willingness for people to embrace this idea of contesting ideas, to to brace against the storm of ugly hate speech and even privatized propaganda that you are willing to brace against that so that you might enjoy the beautiful speech of ideas competing against one another. I'd like to put this idea before you two. Amazon, Twitter, the rest of big tech, they were all within their right to strip parlor from the internet as best as they could. And Twitter was with, with, with fully within its own property rights to remove the president from, uh, from, from their site. And yet, does this create problems for the wider libertarian movement? Let me let me rephrase that. Not just libertarian movement, freedom movement, so that we can accommodate our Republican here. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, I absolutely think it does. I agree there's a conflict between private property and then freedom of speech, both of which are ideals we should always hang on to in America. The problem is that so much power has been put into the hands of private company when it comes to communicating. So you'll see that there, there are certain restrictions on airwaves that Americans communicate through, like radio and TV. Basically, there has to be like equality in candidate advertising. While private companies own TV stations and own radio stations. And yet, because it's considered kind of like a public utility and Americans use it to communicate and to get their news, it's almost, I don't want to say a merger with government because it's not, but I, I don't know how best to explain it other than there's a government flavor <laughs> in what these private companies are doing because of how it's used. Well, you could, there's a lot of complex arguments surrounding it that we don't have time to get into, but um, the point is, in my view, a lot of these social media companies and internet-based communication streams have fallen into that category. And that's why you hear a lot of people at the congressional and other federal levels talking about like section 230 protections and amending some of those that these companies come under. And a big problem is how the private companies hold themselves out. They basically say, hey, we're a communication channel, we're neutral, everyone can put their things on our platform and then they end up being biased. I mean, when they banned President Trump from Twitter, they still left up the leader of Iran and the Chinese Communist Party that absolutely make genocidal and terrorist comments. And somehow that wasn't dangerous, but President Trump's comments were. I mean, there's there's no standard. And here's the problem. As of today, you have two hosts on MSNBC saying that now conservatives should be banned from speaking unless they speak truth. And that's the word they're using, truth. Who defines truth? These private companies? in coordination with the government that's currently in control, because we know that happens. It's a giant complex issue. And I absolutely think these companies are running away with far more government protection and power than private companies should have. Yeah. Um, my big problem with it all is as soon as you interject government, you get a worse result. Yeah. So there's a reason why tech wants to be regulated. Twitter and Facebook want to be regulated. 
because it does two things for them. First, they have a lot of money, so they're going to influence the regulations. And when they influence the regulations, then they can work around them. Right. know exact capture. Yeah. Yeah. So they know exactly what they say. They know exactly what they don't say. And they can pay their attorneys to do what they need them to do to get around them. The other thing regulations do is they dissuade competition. So by putting in place all of these expensive regulatory measures, it's impossible to have anybody compete against those um, those platforms. And I think you see that with like the cable channels, like it took forever for competition to spring up against them. And it only did until completely new technology was developed with the internet. I mean, only once you get Netflix, which truly happened very recently. I mean, I guess you get it some with like the premium channels or the subscription base, but they barely competed with like ABC, NBC, Fox, but now Netflix can, but it took so much to overcome that burden of regulation. So that's, that's my biggest problem. I also, you know, strongly believe in freedom to contract. And I think that if people want to agree, I think people should be reading terms and services. And I think if people want to agree to terms and services that allow them to be kicked off the platform for vague terms, then that's up to people to agree to. I think as a business decision, not that Twitter, I mean, I don't have Twitter and Facebook consulting me for their business decisions in the future, or, you know, they don't bring me in for their shareholder meetings, but I think having a more transparent system would benefit them as businesses into the future. While it seems like they're a bulwark that, you know, no one can ever break down right now. I don't think that that is necessarily true. And I think people are trying to use the first amendment and they're trying to, to like almost bastardize it in order to get at what they want, which is really, I cannot tell you how many times on both sides, I have heard the phrase, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And if I have to hear that phrase one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. We, we can discuss the intricacies of First Amendment jurisprudence later. I want to I want to pull you out of that rabbit hole before you lose your mind, because I know that that is. But there to, to a similar criticism, send somebody to jail for passing out a pamphlet that expre- expressed an opposition to the World War One draft. A man went to jail for that in that case, which has since been overturned. Sorry, Stan, you may continue. I get you. To to make to to allow this point to to make a point. Um, so a lot of Wait, people say, "Are you saying I haven't made a point yet?" No, I'm Is not that saying the implication. That. I'm not saying that. <laughs> that that was okay. Poorly phrased. <laughs> to let your point be a strong point for what we're discussing, because I I think it I think this matters, and I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people were upset that Parler was allowing for not just hate speech, which is protected by a lot of very variable principles. It wasn't just allowing hate speech. It was allowing for people to actively organize or threaten or, uh, or, or plan destruction or murder or whatever. Okay. That they were upset that Parler was allowing that and not taking off their site. Okay. But here's the thing. That kind of behavior I guess you could call it conspiracy in some legal realm is already illegal. And there are already mechanisms to prosecute it that do not require the stripping of a platform, the, 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 the elimination of a public forum like parlor. And by the way, none of us here endorse parlor. I don't use it. I don't care. 
I care about what it represents. And it represents a very niche community. Okay. Do I like the community? Probably not. I mean, I have a parlor. Okay. Do you endorse I do. what? <laughs> I don't then. The, the, point is, the, the point isn't that we endorse or we don't endorse parlor. We, that's not the point. The point is that it represents a niche community that has different, sometimes very wild ideas. There are other mechanisms to take care of the more violent aspects of that community that do not require privatized censorship. Okay. Which to me leads to a very unsatisfactory answer. Private citizens, whether it be companies or us, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard of free speech. But at the same time, we have to allow them to do what they want with their property. It's very unsatisfying, but that's, well, Jefferson, that's, that's my, that's my approach. Yeah. So I, uh, Jefferson had a quote about this and I just think I tweeted it out last week, but talking about the importance of allowing for differences of opinions. And and I'm going to read just so I don't screw up Jefferson's words. Not that anyways, not that they haven't been screwed up for hundreds of years since, Uh, but if there can be any among us who wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. And I think that summarizes it nicely. By silencing people, you don't stop people from having those views. You drive them further into isolation. You prove nothing about their ideas. You don't prove that they're bad ideas. You just prove that you can't counter it with your own ideas. Exactly. You prove that you are willing to use violence to silence other opinions you, you you, you reject. Exactly. And, and really what we should all be doing, and, and I don't know who coined the term, but um, obviously, so there's a fallacy called straw man, where, you know, you formulate the weakest portion, their weakest effigy of the other side and thus strike it down as easily as possible. But we should all be steel manning. You should be able to construct the opposition side as well, if not better than they can. And then you should be able to argue against it. If you can't do that, your argument needs work. And using the force of government, which is violence, which is the barrel of a gun to tell people to shut up is not the way to combat ideas and to combat arguments. No, well, and then it sets up the government once again in a godlike position by saying they're the arbiter of truth. And it changes based on who's in power. If we have the view that well, because the government has this holy place that certainly does not belong to them, <laughs> that they've taken, and they then can say, well, you have to be silent because you don't have facts and you don't have truth. Well, who's defining that? They are. And who are they to define truth or fact? Um, I have a giant problem with that. Can we also appreciate, as we kind of start closing this up, can you also just appreciate that, like that, on a dime, those who are who have been anti-property for years are mm-hmm. all of a sudden saying it's their private property. They can take Trump off as whatever they want. Amazon can get rid of Parler from their site. They can absolutely do that. That's their private property. I'm glad you agree. Can we extend <laughs> it to guns now? Can we extend it to everything else in our life? Yeah. Oh, but mostly peaceful protests and private property. Yes. <laughs>
So we had plans to talk about President Biden and his inauguration, um, his speech, which was mostly full of rhetorical flourishing and a couple of interesting things here and there. I think we're going to save Biden because we would like to look at his overall cabinet selections and their value in terms of we'll, we'll come up with a rating, a zero to 10 liberty rating. We'll uh, look at um, some of his negative proposed, four. We'll look at his some of his proposed plans. <laughs> I don't want to put the cart in front of the horse, but we'll but we'll look at we'll look at Biden with greater detail and attention that it deserves. Um, today we'd like I think this is our tenth episode. We'd like to introduce a new segment for our show, um, a classic of podcasts called Shoutouts, where we thank or give notice to people we think you need to know about. Cody, would you like to be the first? No, I would not. I think. Wow. I will. He has no shadows. Go ahead, Christy. (laughs) So I think the mayor of Monument, Don Wilson, who is a friend of all of ours, but I think he did something super awesome in helping his town council say that their town is going to protect the First Amendment rights of businesses and that it's actually a right in the town of Monument to work and provide for your family, which is a good position to take in the middle of all these COVID restrictions nice Cody are we all supposed to have a shout out I thought it was a podcast wide shout out now I feel like I'm letting my friends down here (laughs) do you have a mom that you'd like to thank for raising a fine young thinker and lawyer sure sounds good mom and dad thanks (laughs) (laughs) so sincere they'll they'll love it they'll love it okay I'm not convinced they listen. <laughs> I, I, I think I, my dad does, though, because something I said in an episode I heard about at Christmas. So, <laughs> so dad, if you're listening, thanks. If you've got anything left to say, I'll be home in like February or March. So let me know what you what you thought. <laughs> I have a I have a, a shout out for a, a Judd Carter. Um, he's a, a friend of mine, a friend of my wife's from Missouri. Um, he's been listening since the beginning. Apparently he loves it. Judd, I'm glad to hear it. Shout out to you, my friend. Um, I think that's it for us today. We have nothing else to talk about. That's not true. We have lots to talk about. We have so much to talk about. Whatever we're going to talk about next time is going to be self-evident. It's likely going to be forgotten. You can find us on Twitter for now and Instagram for now at SEF underscore pod, as well as Facebook for now. You can listen to us also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For now, with that, we'll see you next time. Hopefully. Hopefully.